Would you bow in prayer with me? Father in heaven, we thank you for this, your day, the Lord's day on the first day of the week, and we thank you for the company of each other as well. Lord, we thank you for the things we've been able to hear and to sing thus far. We ask you to be merciful in bringing to our memory the things we need to know to paint the picture in our head and our heart that would put us in the place of awe at your greatness and glory. You are the God of the Bible where you revealed yourself to us. The mighty acts that you did in front of your people, the Hebrew people. And as we open our, our Bibles today and look at what you did as you surrendered yourself in place of the world for the payment of sins. Lord, you've been teaching us, changing us, guiding us, helping us, sustaining us, encouraging us, saving us for generations out of this very building. Lord, we ask today that you do it again. And make this time that we have here together with you not just something that would be meaningful today, but for eternity. Lord, we ask this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Well, it's good to see you folks again. And uh, for those of you joining by way of live stream, we're glad to have you as well. And as always, we thank you for your faithfulness. Uh, even on a Sunday where it had threatened to bring us that... Uh, not the, the green stuff or the white stuff, but the pink stuff on the radar, the, the, the mix, the dangerous frozen stuff that can cause lots of problems in parking lots and on the roadways. But we're glad just to have the rain. And uh, I would say by way of announcement, uh, while you're turning to John chapter 18, that's where we'll be in just a moment. Uh, by way of announcement, I'd like to uh, have you watch for an email coming this week. Uh, in addition to the, the regular email we send out on Wednesdays, that is our Wednesday evening updates, what we call it, because that's our prayer sheet that we'll discuss in our, our Zoom meeting, which is our midweek uh, Bible study and, and prayer meeting. If you're not getting that and would like to, uh, call our office and we'll get you on the list. But in addition to that, we're going to send out an update uh, as far as COVID goes. It's been almost eight months since we did that, but for months and months and months, nothing really changed. There's some things that are changing now, and uh, we need to make sure even though we see light at the end of the tunnel, knowing that we're not at the end of the tunnel, uh, we need to be on the same page while we're hearing of folks who are receiving their vaccine, uh, folks who've had the virus and have recovered, uh, working and inching our way toward what we hope is a meaningful herd immunity, some things are going to change as we get closer to that. And we've had more people coming uh, in, in the last few weeks than we have uh, since we opened back up again in June. And it's likely we're going to need another room, our... Uh, overflow and because that room's smaller than this room and less airspace the expectations for that room are probably going to be different for this room 
They've also got people uh, meeting in Sunday school spaces. Not a lot, but a little. Uh, For the foreseeable time, we'll have people that are Zooming and people that are in person, kind of like the situation we've got here. But because those rooms are smaller than this room, the expectations for those rooms will be different than this. So we thought we'd put it all in writing, try to make it as easy as possible, but send that out for everybody to read so we all know what is expected. And that should uh, arrive in your inbox sometime this week and i just thought of this it's worth a mention you may get a lot of email from wake chapel more than you want we're working on ways to send out different emails on different lists like the wednesday email goes out differently than say our chapel chimes which is going to go email as well that's a monthly publication and then when we have updates like for covid or for weather that would be another If you feel like you're getting too much and you're wanting to click that unsubscribe button, call us before you hit that button and we'll lower your uh, mailing list. Because once you click unsubscribe, you won't get any of it. That's just the way the law works regarding mass email. We have to put that at the bottom. And if you want out, you can get out. But we'd hate for you to miss your weather report, cancellation or so forth, because we sent you too much that you didn't need. So we're working on trying to make that better for uh, what suits the person that receives it. With that said, John 18. We're back to John after spending a month with Habakkuk. And before that, some time talking about Christmas. And the way may very well uh, break for the summer to study something else. We're going to follow this book into the Easter season where... The passage that talks about the resurrection hopefully will land on Easter. And about a month after that, we'll finish the book itself. Uh, But as far as chapter 18, where we pick up today, the first 17 chapters of this gospel have been leading up to the final sign. John's gospel is full of signs. Signs are designed to point to something. And these signs, miracles as we might call them, are pointing to the fact that Jesus is who he said he was. But we're nearing the point of the final sign. He's healed the sick. He has walked on water. He has multiplied fish and bread. But after he has been killed and dead three days and then raised from the dead... He will have sufficient evidence to demand a verdict. There will be enough for the world to decide. Should we believe this man? Is, is he telling the truth? Is he a liar? Is he crazy? If he's telling the truth, he's Lord. So that's what we're working toward. All the book is, is, is culminating in these last few chapters. Let me read to you the first 11 verses Chapter 18, then we'll pray and we'll work through one at a time. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron, where there was a garden which he and his disciples entered. Now Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. So Judas, having procured a band of soldiers... And some officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees 
went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. Then Jesus, knowing all that would happen to him, came forward and said to them, Whom do you seek? They answered him, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them. When Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. So he asked them again, Whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. The servant's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? This is God's word. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for your word and for this passage that describes your betrayal and right up to the point of your arrest. Lord, this is familiar to us. We usually hear it about the spring of the year. Lord, we ask that you open it up to us new today, that we'd learn something perhaps we've never seen or never thought our way through, but that your word would be alive to us. It's this request that we ask of you, the great teacher, in your name. Amen. Because this is familiar territory, we're, we're encroaching on what is as well known as the Christmas passages. We'll need to make sure that we pay attention because we can run right over a lot of this and, and miss things that are there, but we don't see them because we're familiar. It's like walking past your children every day only to have someone who hasn't seen them in a long time say, man, they've grown. Or the dents and nicks and the paintwork at your house that you no longer notice, but anyone who was there before they happened probably do. We want to make sure... Uh, that we spend our time trying to drink in these details and hopefully to see this in a fresh way. Back to that first verse, we're given basically the first scene. And I'll, I'll guide you through this, but there's two different scenes early and then those two scenes converge to a third. But in 18, when Jesus had spoken these words, well, what words? The words of chapters... Uh, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17. That whole conversation is one long conversation. started in the upper room. Well, when he'd said that, he went out with his disciples across the brook Kidron. There was a garden which he and his disciples entered. So verse 1 gives us a time stamp and a location, um, which is important. We can track what things are going on and where they're taking place. Uh, the speaking that took place in verses 13 through 17, that being over, Jesus and his 11 are making their way down into the Kidron Valley. What is the Kidron Valley? Well, that's basically, to us, we might refer to that more as a gully, maybe a ravine. It's not as deep as you might want to imagine uh, as a, a valley would be. 
But it's basically about 200 feet of, of descent, as far as elevation goes, from the base of the outer court of the temple complex. If you're standing at the temple complex, the bottom of the Kidron Valley is about 200 feet lower topographically. Uh, this was not a river that would flow all year. It's kind of like some of the creeks you have that are dry in the summer, but they're wet now. Well, that's the way it would be here. This could actually be dangerous certain times when it would rain, and it wouldn't rain much, but when it did, it rained a lot. And David had actually made this same trek when he's fleeing from Absalom back in the Old Testament. He makes his way down through the Kidron Valley to the Mount of Olives. Well, this is what Jesus and his disciples are doing. And the word entered here, entered into this garden, that's probably to signal to us that this is a private garden. It's walled. It's owned by some wealthy person set aside for Jesus. Actually, they tell us that at Passover for that night that you had to stay within a specific vicinity of the city. If he wanted to observe Passover, his disciples, these other men, going back to Bethany wouldn't work. He'd be left out of all that. So he's likely planned to spend the night with his men in this location. Um, verse 2. This is scene 2 because this is somewhere else. You've got Jesus leaving upper room, winding up in the Garden of Gethsemane on the uh, Mount of Olives. But Judas is somewhere else. He's the one who John tells us multiple times would betray him. He also knew of the place. What place? The place in the garden. Explanation here for Jesus often met there with his disciples. And this, this is where the drama begins to heighten, right? Because Judas is going to betray this man with a kiss. For money. Knowing what will result. But he's going to go to a place where they'd all spent time together. So if you wanted to paint the picture here, it's possible to be familiar with the most holiest of places and do the most damnable things. Uh, really, you'd be hard-pressed to find an illustration of how a man could betray another in a worse type of way. Or one relationship to another. You could think of a marital relationship and the sacred bond there, but... But breaking that in a way that would violate the things that were only shared by that couple for that space of time. This is no small thing. And it's not only true for Judas. I mean, if we were to just give ourselves one of those healthy doses of a depravity check. Uh, for some reason, it seems to be one of the devil's favorite tactics is to take us in a place where we would least likely feel vulnerable to his temptations and just take it up through the roof. Uh, maybe after a, a, a personal victory or after fighting through something for a long time that's finally over. On a vacation that you're supposed to enjoy. Uh, you, you make it up. It's not off limits to the devil. And... As far as the picture and the way Jesus is involved with this, including the garden, if Jesus wanted to, you know, thwart the plans of Judas and this arrest, um, he wouldn't go to the place that Judas knew all about, 
that everyone expected him to be, would he? No. So Jesus knows all about this. And it's at this point that John begins very meticulously, and this will carry all the way to the end when, when he records Jesus' words as, It is finished. He's telling us that Jesus is in complete, total control of the situation every little step of the way, including choosing where he's going to be betrayed. He knows it's coming, and it doesn't in any way change his plans. So verse 3, So Judas, we're still in scene 2, having procured a band of soldiers and some officers from the chief priests and Pharisees, went there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So just some intel on the force of men that Judas led. It's actually joined three otherwise divided factions against a common enemy, which is Jesus. If you look at that, it's three groups. Band of soldiers, chief priests, Pharisees. None of those folks liked each other. The Pharisees hated the Sadducees, which were the chief priests. And the band of soldiers were Romans, and all the Jews hated the Romans. But on this night, they're happy to be involved together united against a common enemy whose name was Jesus. So uh, the band of soldiers, uh, that was a Roman cohort. Have you used the word cohort this week? Probably not. It sounds sinister, doesn't it? A cohort. That's because we watch too much TV. It was just a way to describe a number of Roman soldiers. A cohort was a tenth of a legion. A legion was between 3,000 and 6,000 men, so a tenth of that would be 300 to 600 men. Sounds like a lot of men to go take care of one guy and 11 followers when you've got one of his followers leading you to the place where you're going to find him. But if that sounds like overkill, uh, let's see, I've got it written down here. 470 men were put together, Romans that is, to escort Paul from Jerusalem to Caesarea. And Paul was not Jesus. So they have a tendency to overdo things if they're Romans, of course, likely the way they conquered the known world at a particular time. Question, why would they be so concerned about this Jesus? Uh, why is a Jewish carpenter from Nazareth a big deal? Well, we've been reading about it, and we should know this, but just to make sure we cover all the bases. It's Passover for one thing. And Passover was when all the Israelites celebrated, commemorated the deliverance of God's people from Egypt, right? You watch the Ten Commandments. You know how that all got started? Well, they've been doing this for generations upon generations. And not only would they commemorate what God did in the past, they were always hoping for what God would do in the future, which would be a new exodus from the people that had enslaved His people. So they're always looking for the next Moses, as it were. Um, God's promise was the prophet's prophecy, and everyone was, was aware of it. This Jesus... Who everyone is talking about, this Passover, whose arguments they cannot defeat, whose miracles they cannot deny, whose physical person they cannot seem to entrap, has recently begun talking about how the time had come for the glorification of the Son of Man, which everybody knows comes from Daniel 7. And by the way, there are about a million people watching all this pile up. So yeah, they expected trouble. And they're prepared for it. 
They expected an attempt to overthrow certain sitting power structures. Power would be overthrown, of course. We know the end of this story. But not at all in the way they expected. So from the perspective of the men that are part of this group, let, let's we're looking at, at, at scene one and two converge on scene three when they arrive at the garden. But I don't know, it might be interesting or helpful to think of it from the perspective of these men. Look how it's described here. They had lanterns and torches and weapons. How many of you from grammar class know that there's an extra and in there? You could say lanterns, torches, and weapons, right? Do any of you ever add the extra and just for dramatic effect? Could you remember movies where they might do that? Lions and tigers and bears. Oh my. Lanterns and torches and weapons. So they're ready. They're, they're prepared and as far as the conditions into which they are prepared and ready to work, uh, there would have been a full moon on account of Passover. That holiday follows the moon cycle, not an actual calendar date. And being that John will tell us later that the night was cold, he's going to tell us that when Peter's warming himself at the fire when he denies Jesus. But usually a cold night unseasonably means a clear sky. So they've got a, a, a light in the sky to help them. The Mount of Olives was full of olive groves, thus its name. And the Kidron Valley was full of cedars. So it's not just a clear walk. Of course, there's pathways, but there's plenty of places to hide. They seem to have expected a fight, were prepared to meet it. They trained for this stuff. They were ready. So they thought, when you get to verse 4, Then Jesus Knowing all that would happen to him. Now, now that's something none of us could ever know, but this is something God would know. And what really colors up everything that happens from here, he knows what's going to happen where no one else does. Came forward and said to them, whom do you seek? So this is scene three. And really what's on display here is his courage. You say, I, don't, I might need more courage to know not what... No, I don't think you need more courage not knowing what's going to happen. Sometimes courage comes in when you know what is expected of you. And knowing all that would happen, he walks right out into the middle. Walks out of the private walled garden, that is. And is face to face with this cohort, the men from the temple, and this, the chief priests. Now, I've already talked about watching too much TV. So I hope you'll pardon my reference to modern culture. But this is so backward than what we would expect. This is no Marvel movie. It's not Star Wars where the bad guys have underestimated the good guy. A fight ensues in time. Good wins over the bad and everything is okay. This is not what's going to happen. This is the beginning. The first domino in what will result in man murdering their maker. If we believe the Bible to be true. And all while God in heaven watches on. And doesn't interrupt. So again. 
Jesus is in total control of this. He walks out to them. They're not looking. They're just standing there with the torches and the lanterns and the weapons. And he's basically giving himself up. But the thing that's absolutely clear is he's no victim. There was no chase. Uh, there was no group of, of, of you know, 600 against one. It's one against 600, more the way we see it here. What he's doing is he's laying down his life for his sheep. And what's interesting here is the way things have changed. Because on more than one occasion, you have to remember backwards to what we've studied over two years worth of studying John's gospel. On more than one occasion, people sought to make Jesus a king. By force, one passage tells us. And what did he do? He disappeared. He withdrew. He's not going to have that. It's not time. Not like this. But here, they've come to put him to death. And he walks right out and gives himself up. Total opposite. Verse 5. They answered him when he says, Whom do you seek? By saying, Jesus of Nazareth. That's the name that everybody knew. The name is just a first name. There were a lot of people by that name. But the one from Nazareth. Jesus said to them, I am he. And John tells us Judas, who betrayed him, was standing with them, with the group. So, John doesn't tell us about the betrayed with a kiss part. John kind of moves over that. We learn that from other gospel writers. So, a lot of this can be happening quickly. Verse 6, when Jesus said to them, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Now, this is where I wish... We did have access to footage of this. Because the, the commentators are all over the place. Some of them think, well, they weren't expecting him to come out. They don't know who he is. When they actually find out by his own words that he's the one they're looking for, then the Romans begin to back up and build a perimeter and maybe kneel with their shields locked together uh, as if to cut off any way of escape. That's one option that some of the commentators have. Other ones want to make it look like, you know, this big force field. Knock them all off their feet and they don't know where they are. That could be what's going on. Again, we have a few words to work with in the Greek and we've got to build what we see here. That they fell is uh, sure. That it was to the ground was sure. That they went backward in some way, that's sure. But trying rather to speculate, let's just look what's here and, and pick. I'll, I'll give you what I think makes best sense from the plethora of options from those who are much smarter than me. Um, this was not the first time that Jesus had said, I am he. And it got a reaction. Because to say those two words, which in Greek is ego a me, I am. That's not a big deal. We use that all the time. But it just so happens to be the way that God identified himself to Moses at the burning bush. You tell Pharaoh, I am that I am. And in one place, chapter 8 of this book that we're studying, a conversation's ensuing. And Jesus is speaking and the people push back on what he said and said, now wait just a minute. You said that Abraham, you saw Abraham... Abraham's dead. 
And Jesus responds rather simplistically, before Abraham was, I am. Like that. And they picked up rocks to stone him. Because everybody knew the way he said it, he was saying that he was like the I am. He's considering himself God. Now, would the Romans know what that meant? Probably not. Would the chief priests and temple guards know what that meant? Maybe some of them had met him. Maybe they'd heard about him. But here he comes out. He identifies himself in a specific way to leave all questions mute. It's him. And he's still claiming to be God. So maybe that gave them some pause. Maybe the way he said it had some supernatural effect to them. And they were stunned. But either way, whatever happened, it was necessary that Jesus asked them again, Who is it you're looking for? And they have to respond a second time, Jesus of Nazareth. So even if you want to think of it as just, you know, the record scratch, uh, or some supernatural thing where they see what maybe the disciples saw on the Mount of Transfiguration or something similar, it stopped the presses. And he has to ask the question, and they answer the question again, and they're right back where they started. So, so far, whatever happened, um, it's a night to remember for everybody. Um, And maybe it'd be worth thinking this. For all it was, they only fell back to the ground. And maybe lost their thought. And then they're back on track. You tell me. Do you think it would be possible for you to lay a hand on the Son of God. To harm Him and get by with it. They're fortunate they didn't fall into hell. And just like the centurion who's going to have the opportunity to say and confess. This was truly the Son of God. These men have the same option. In this situation, we see the height of God's grace to these people who want Him dead. He's still giving them time and a chance to look and see what they're seeing and hear what they're hearing. And decide for themselves whether or not they want to trust Him to be who He said He is. It's an amazing thing. So what we learned so far is that you could be familiar with the inside of a church to the same extent Judas was familiar with the inside of a garden and still perish eternally. Or you could get as close to disaster as attempting to arrest the Son of God and live to face the true reckoning of choosing whether you're going to be with Him or against Him in an eternal scale. Look at verse 7. So he asked them again, whom do you seek? They said, Jesus of Nazareth. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let these men go. Now we ought to know enough to realize that had Jesus not given himself up, there would have been a pursuit. And it's likely that every last one of these men would have been arrested in the sweep to find Jesus, right? I don't think there'd be any way of escape. So think of that right there. He has asked them for a second time, 
who are you looking for? And they have answered for a second time, Jesus of Nazareth. So he has, again, in total control of what's going on, made them say out of their own mouths that their business is only with him. So he says, well, then let these guys go. So he gets what he wants. And it's certainly not what they would have chosen, I'm sure. So did you get the rest of the guys? Oh, well, no. Kind of the way he put it, it only looked like... we. I'm talking about what it would be like when they got done at the end of their shift and all they've got is Jesus and the other 11 are gone. But that's the way this happens. So how do you suppose heaven saw this? Trying to look at all the angles here. And we know what God thinks, but what do the angels think? Jesus has just traded himself for 11 men. Now, are these some special 11 men? No, we've seen these men so far, and really there's not much special about them at all. Every now and then you've got Peter saying, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. But then, good grief, he's not even gotten started as to the damage he's going to do in just a few moments. Was it, would it be worth it? Would, would, would heaven look at this and say, What in the world are you doing? But that's always been the plan. It's always been a substitutionary transaction. Verse 9. This was to fulfill the word that he had spoken. Of those whom you gave me, I have lost not one. This of all should be the most encouraging to you. You're not an apostle. You're not a disciple. But if you belong to Jesus, the same is true. Once you're given, none is lost. And it starts in the Garden of Gethsemane with Jesus' self-fulfilling prophecy. Jesus is doing what the Father sent him to do. Look at verse 10. Then Simon Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's servant and cut off his right ear. And then John tells us in parentheses, the servant's name was Malchus. So before we get to the drama of what we just read... Um, the mechanics of it are, are simply this. What Peter does shows the confusion and frustration of all the disciples. He's always the stand-in for the rest of the group. Whatever he's doing, they're thinking and feeling. They just don't have the guts to do it yet. So he's taking matters into his own hands. We know he loves God. We know he loves Jesus. And we know he hates the wickedness of a world that would treat his Jesus the way they have. So he's chosen to do something about it. In a split second, thin slicing, whatever you want to call it, he's jumped into action. And folks, if any of you have ever found yourself trying to do the right thing for the right reason, only to wind up to do the wrong thing the wrong way, then you, like me, can identify with Peter. You kind of got to give it to him. But that's what he's done, and he's in a mess. There's no question he's ready to die in his attempt to cause a distraction sufficient to provide a window for Jesus' escape. Why do I say he's doing this as a diversion to cause a window for Jesus to escape? Because even Peter, I don't think, expected to take on a cohort. Uh, it's just not going to work. But he didn't understand, or he wouldn't have done what he did, that this is the way it all must happen. 
And either Peter, to get back to the drama of what he did, there's one of two options here. If you analyze his move and its result. Either Peter is good enough to cut off the man's ear, or he's so bad he misses his whole head. But it's one of the two. And it's likely the latter. Because if, if what he was aiming at was the ear, we can congratulate his precision. But if he's aiming for his throat, well, that's pretty much a fail. Maybe the guy's wearing a helmet. Maybe it went off the side of the helmet and down the side. Did it cut off the whole ear? We don't know. John doesn't even tell us that Jesus puts it back on. Uh, we can talk about that in a moment. That's more dramatic to me than it being cut off. But what we can say is that Peter had evidently zeal without skill. He also had zeal without knowledge. And that'll be what we talk about in the weeks to come when we're reading the passages about his betrayal. Uh, verse 11, so Jesus said to Peter, this is the last verse of the section today, put your sword into its sheath. And here's the operative line of, of this paragraph. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Which is a way to say this is planned. This is my task. Are we going to just throw that away? It must be done. So though Jesus is telling Peter to stop, and telling Peter to stop would likely only have confused him more than he already was, it was absolutely necessary to make clear that he had every intention of drinking the cup that the Father had given him. It has to happen this way. Now, I like Peter, and I know he was wrong, and I know he had plenty of zeal, but it was without knowledge because at the end, Jesus has to say, it has to be this way. It's not that way. It's this way. So rather than just letting Peter get gold stars for effort, he has to correct the problem, which was a misunderstanding of what he was doing. And we'll look more about that later. Vivid contrast, but... Add this to the contrast of, of Jesus earlier. Peter here is ready to sacrifice himself. Pulls the pin on a diversion that proves to be a dud. But not even hours later when called upon to identify himself as the one that Jesus had been with. He'll deny him outright. Not just once but twice. So... When they came to make Jesus king, he fled. But when they came to kill him, he stepped forward. When Jesus is arrested, Peter draws his sword. But when a girl asks him who he is at a fire, he fails. In a moment of passion, he's got courage. In a moment of decision, he's a coward. So we're, we're drawing that contrast between Jesus and the way he does things and us and the way we do things. You, you couldn't draw it any more starkly than, than it's being drawn. And before I give you a conclusion here and we wrap this up, there's one other thing I thought might be interesting to think through. 
Ever thought about what it would have been to be the fellow whose ear was cut off? And if it hadn't been for John, we wouldn't know his name was Malchus. And that John knew that, um, there's speculation as to how. Um, Clement of Alexandria, one of his commentaries said that it was his father who sold fish in Jerusalem that gave them their inside track into the who's who. Maybe. If everybody eats fish, I guess you get to see everybody. But what would it have been like to go home? I don't know when he would go home. I'm sure he's got us document what he did. Maybe swear a deposition. There'd be interviews. He probably got home late that night if he got home at all. Maybe he's married, maybe he's not, but I'm old enough and have been in enough accidents to know that when something like that happens in a flash, you don't always know what trouble you're in. Um, I remember a situation where my sister tripped inside of the boat we were riding and fell onto the back of the way the seats would fold down, jumped right back up, was ready to get on the skis. We had to go to the emergency room. It was bad. She had no clue. Something about adrenaline and in the middle of the moment, it takes the body a good while to let you know. Usually you have to see it. Nobody can see their own ear without a mirror. But I'm just wondering how long it was. And you know that everybody's sword came out of the sheath at that, right? You've seen enough westerns to know that once one gun comes out of the holster, they all come out of the holster, unless it's a standoff. The ability of Jesus, again, in total control, to calm that whole situation probably had a lot to do with his putting the man's ear back on. And maybe it's not until he gets home he understands the extent of what it was. Maybe he doesn't. Maybe... It's his wife who cleans it up and she can't find anything as far as a scar there. Whether or not it, all the blood was there as a witness or if that disappeared at the healing too. I don't know. But all that's small compared to what it's like to be the guy who had his ear cut off and put back on over the next three days. Because the next day you're going to realize that the man who did that for you is dead. And then three days later, you're going to realize that the man who did that for you is alive. And does that do anything for you as far as whose team you're on? Does that mean that you lose your job? Does that mean that you go to a cross yourself? Imaginations could take us all over the place. I hope one day to be able to ask that fellow himself. I hope it was such a life-changing encounter that he chose wisely but it must have been something here's the conclusion this is what we make of this a lot going on we've looked at the details to try to drink in the, the different scene from different angles but the last phrase is what makes the most impact the implications of which are eternal if jesus hadn't given himself up to secure the freedom of all who follow him we would have to face almighty justice on our own merits. What began with a, I'm he, let these guys go, is the template for the, 
the plan of salvation uh, to this day and into, and into the point where he comes to, to take us to be with himself. Now, that's, that's on a grand scheme, but what happened this night for these men going free on that night would not cover their going free for eternity if the cup hadn't been drunk. Uh, for example, chapter 4. Do you remember the official whose son was sick? He comes to Jesus. My son's sick. You've got to heal my son. And Jesus starts asking him questions in the, where others can hear. You only want signs. If you don't see signs, you don't believe. And it almost sounds harsh to a guy whose only concern is his sick boy who might die. But then we discuss that after the boy was healed... Which is a wonderful thing. You would think if that's all that guy ever got out of Jesus. He got a lot more than a lot of people. My son was sick. He was going to die and I've got him back. But both that boy and that man would one day breathe their last and die and face eternity. So if healing the boy was all Jesus ever did. That's certainly not enough for eternity. But it says in the story that him and his house believed. So not only did he save their life. He saved their soul. So what's going on here is Jesus could save these men's hide in a garden. But without drinking the cup that was meant for them, he can't save their souls eternally. That's what Peter didn't understand yet. And that's what a whole host of people all over the world don't understand. It has to do with a cup that he's going to drink. So you don't have to. If you trust him by faith. So having given himself up, Jesus is on his way. The process is in motion to obey his father's perfect plan. It would involve no less than drinking the full cup of his father's wrath against the sin of the entire world. And was the only means for delivering not only his disciples, but also all who would follow him. It was the only way it could work. Kind of goes back to a picture in the Old Testament that's meant to help us see the patterns as we move our way through. But you remember there was a man, his name was Abram. He didn't have any kids. Then he was Abraham, still didn't have any kids. He was promised a multitude. He was given Isaac. And then he was asked to go take him up on a mountain and sacrifice him, which seemed absurd. But he was going to do it. Halfway up the mountain, his son Isaac is asking him, we got everything we need except the sacrifice. What did he say? God will provide. And right at the moment where this man is about to sacrifice his son. In a story that most of the world that doesn't believe anything about this would go. Oh, have you lost your mind? What kind of a God would ask something like that? Well he didn't actually go through with it. He stopped his hand and said I see your faith. And then their attention is given over to a thicket where a ram is caught. And there's the sacrifice which has been provided in substitute. So again, the world would say, what kind of a God would punish sinners? The kind of God who'd put up his own boy to take it instead. If they'll trust him and worship him by faith. That's how this works. Theologically, it's called substitutionary atonement. And it's the means of our justification. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? Well, we're glad he did. Because if he hadn't, we would. Let's pray.
Father in heaven, we thank you for the story, at least this small portion containing the events of your arrest and how even then on your mind, picked up on by John, you were fulfilling what you had said in your prayer to your father in the garden. Not one of them has been lost. Lord, we thank you for what you did. And Lord, I ask that for any who are considering these things fresh, Lord, give them what they need to know to see clear that what you've done is salvation. That they would trust you by faith. That you'd give them new birth. That they'd be wondrously saved. And tell others. Thank you for our time in your house. Thank you for the truth of your word. Thank you. For drinking the cup that was supposed to be ours. We ask this in your name. Amen.